Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. So my guest today has a pretty incredible career journey from being medical director for some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, working with the likes of IBM, Rolls-Royce, to chairing things like ethics committees for the Faculty of Occupational Medicine. But I'd say where it gets really interesting is after a long career in medicine, he decided to hang up his metaphorical stethoscope and dive into something completely different. And now he's a craftsman running his own woodworking business uh, in the beautiful city of Newcastle. And then still doing some really interesting work which uh, in, the, in the field of medicine, which I hope to hear more about. But um, I guess I'd say really, truly embodies the spirit of, of retirement, even though um, I've just been told he's, he's still very active, doing some really interesting work on things like radiation, which, which we'll hear more about. Allow me to welcome uh, Dr. Bob Jefferson. Bob, welcome to the broadcast. Well, thanks very much, Rod, and thanks for the invite. I think one or two, one or two of your guests previously have expressed the, you know, why me, and I, I'm not really in the, the same league or company as some of your other guests, but I'm happy to be here and uh, share uh, some thoughts with you, and I'm quite happy to do that. As as you said, you, I misled you slightly when you thought I was fully retired, but I'm not quite. Uh, I'm honing my woodworking skills on both wood turning and uh, box making and that's that's quite interesting and funny enough my uh, son was married two weeks ago and so I, I made a uh, a chalice with two captive rings in zebrano wood just as a as a memento on my um uh, daughter-in-law as now ellie uh, she's a great huge harry potter fan so i managed to get a limited edition 50 uk 50p coin with dumbledore on it 2023 and that's that's epoxied into the bottom of the chalice so so that's quite a nice little keepsake a one-off not for not for sale not for sale. well well congratulations <laughs> well, um, thanks very much Ron. i imagine ellie must have been so so happy oh she was pretty pretty impressed that i'm picking them up from the airport tonight because they've just come back from california so oh yeah. wow so, honeymoon so. nice yeah nice. Busy, busy day today yeah, so you've been anything but retired, super busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with weddings and things. And as you mentioned, I, I, I keep my hand in with my expertise in uh, sort of nuclear stuff and radiation and things like that, which I have accrued over the years. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I challenge you on, on you saying you're, you're not a, a, you know, a, a big wig in, in your area and... Um, you know you're you're one of the world's leading experts on things like radiation and you've you've worked in i know places like uh, japan and and the rest considering the geopolitics of today like what what's keeping you busy on on the radiation side well i suppose the bit the big area at the moment which is no great secret is the conflict that's going on in ukraine at the moment and there's a lot of people that are you know, worried about both the, the nuclear power plants in Ukraine that are in the middle of a war zone and, of course, the the potential, although I would have to say it's incredibly small risk, uh, of a nuclear weapon being detonated in and around the environs of the conflict. And 
one of the key things for me when something like this crops up is about getting the right information out there and getting that communication to not so much hold people's hands through this very difficult time but actually just giving them that you know that that concrete information that is not on social media outlets you know TikTok, facebook and others where and media outlets which can catastrophize things because let, let's be fair you know if you mention radiation or you don't mention nuclear people do lose their minds i mean uh, and it's that's partly because of misinformation uh, out there and an example would be something like chernobyl where if you you know depending on which website you look at thousands of people died in the chernobyl disaster of course they didn't they didn't yeah. the official figure is about 31 the un thinks it's about 50 terrible that, that that many people died but most of them were in and around the time of the explosion and the fires and the subsequent few weeks where it was a terrible place to be to be because of the intense danger um and but it but when you look at you know i'm not going to specifically pull out media outlets but you know even tv shows catastrophize it and make it look as a, a lot worse than what actually was i mean it was a big disaster of course i'm not saying it wasn't but it, you know when you, you you drill down into it it actually wasn't at the level that people think it is and when you give that information you, you know you've got two audiences haven't you you've got the audience that doesn't believe a word you say because they've you know they've got their truth that they've picked up on whatever outlet they, they've in and then you've got the audience that oh actually right okay that that makes sense and here you can find this information here there you know accredited sites rather than just looking what's what's out there the internet has, is great i mean we're doing this over the internet of course it's it's a fabulous tool but there's lots of dangers in there particularly when you think about radiation and uh, nuclear i mean, again give you an example you mentioned that i worked in japan you're quite right i mean i worked on the you know uh, in the radiation effects research foundation in hiroshima and nagasaki looking at the long-term effects of the atomic bombs that were dropped in 1945 i talked to medical colleagues they, they think i glow in the dark you know the think i'm radioactive because i've been there and i've been there a number of times but when you have to sit down with medical colleagues who are you know intelligent folks who you know have medical degrees or postgraduate most of the time <laughs> well yes yeah 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 there are the the cases of not quite having the medical degree but you know I, i'm still practicing as a doctor let's not go down that rabbit hole but yeah yeah, yeah. uh but talking to the the and i do a lot of lecturing to uh, junior doctors who want to specialize in occupational and environmental medicine and are interested in you know radiation and nuclear stuff and that they you know every every time i lecture i always get one or two who say yeah yeah but in wikipedia or you know i watch the hbo um thing on chernobyl or uh, you know there's something on tiktok and it, it disagrees with what you've said and it's like well yeah they're wrong i'm right you know and let's discuss why that's the case um i'm not aware that any social media platform is a peer-reviewed medical journal but hey i'm here to be shut down i'm quite i'm quite happy to to uh, be told that i'm wrong uh and certainly wikipedia isn't that and you, i'm sure you're aware i mean you can you can just edit wikipedia to your heart's delight you know you can go in and just change whatever you want and people have done that over the years for a number of sites and nuclear and radiation is one of those key areas where people really want to you know want to frighten people 
and uh, one of my roles as i say and that's what i'm doing in, with uh, some clients in ukraine at the moment is just to get that perspective you know it's the hazard risk thing you know the hazard radiation yeah yeah but it's it's predictable it's quantifiable you know you, you can if you know what you're looking at it's easy to then look at contingency measures um but if you you know you're talking about chemicals and you know you know the novachok incident in salisbury much more complex than any radiation incident but on saying that because if you look at the history of accidents around the world and to be fair there haven't been that many you know since the second world war which is you know it but people find that quite surprising but there, ha there have been some um it's sometimes up to the average i think is about 21 days before someone works out that a, a nuclear or radiation accident has happened now not that's not the case in something like three mile island or chernobyl or fukushima for example you know where it's obvious that there's a problem on day one but a lot of the you know where you, you've got cases there's a famous case in guana in brazil you know uh, in the 1980s where you know some guys stole a teletherapy um a unit from a, a disused medical facility and uh, cut it up now that that was full of cesium 137 very very radioactive source still active uh, they cut it up to sell it for scrap there was this magic blue glow powder that came out you know everyone thought this was fantastic you know oh the villages uh, where where these guys were operating thought this was magic powder you know they're putting it on as face paint on the kids they were put it on sandwiches it was just incredibly frightening and it was only a few weeks later that a very astute local doctor would pick it out hang on there's something major league going on here when a number of people started to get acute radiation sickness um and that ended up with one of the biggest radiation uh, accidents in the world you know 120,000 people were at risk and had to be monitored uh, parts of uh, where where that happened in Brazil you know are no-go areas there's radioactive debris still in containers and fields that are uh, demarked you know that's a huge thing but that took ages for people to realize if they'd realized on day one what they were dealing with then it's quite easy to then pick up you know have have that plan in place have the treatment protocols in place have the screening in place and that's one of the challenges and that's one of the things that i'm talking to the the folks in ukraine that you know we monitor the and particularly in a conflict area and you may or may not be aware in europe there's a huge number of uh, radiation detectors scattered all around europe including ukraine belarus um the uh, the western part of russia eastern europe more in western europe which is uh fair you know that you can argue well why is that well you know the the, the there's more history there that um uh, particularly in the uh, the french and the swiss uh have put a lot of monitors in place and you know we will pick up an event in ukraine very very quickly and there'll be a massive response uh you know the ukrainian government will have already had a lot of support you know in europe from nato and the eu and from the us um but we'll get much more support if something does go pop and that includes the zafranica plant which is currently at risk because the dam you know you, you may be aware you know the Kherson uh dam uh was destroyed a few weeks ago um and the that plant relied on the the reservoir water to cool um the the plant uh but actually when you look at the uh the inspectors there they 
the plans in place as there's, there's months and months of uh, supply of water for that particular site there's some stuff in social media about explosives being put on the site there's no evidence for that at the moment the inspectors to be fair haven't been able to climb on the roof to check because there's been a number of pictures in the in social media about oh there's explosives on the roof and there's going to be another chernobyl um which it wouldn't be another chernobyl but that's a you know a, a, a bigger discussion because the, the the site the plant is a completely different entity to the chernobyl plant um what's the concern is that either because of overheating because of lack of water or some something will make the the plant explode and then the radiation what is carried like with the wind or what what are people thinking yeah well no, well all of the above really um but none of them would actually happen what what are the, the things of the in nuclear uh, particularly a pressurized water reactor, which is what the Ukrainians have got, which are modern reactors, uh, you need coolant water to keep the um, the core temperature without giving you a physics lesson, which I hate physics anyway, so I wouldn't be wouldn't be wanting to do that. Um, in simplistic terms, you, you, you need cold water to cool the uh, the core. Um, otherwise, if the core starts to overheat, you get superheated steam and then you get into this chain reaction and then you, you may get pop. But you would more likely to get what's called a meltdown where you get loss of containment. And that's what happened in, to a certain extent in Chernobyl. They had a fire and an explosion which caused radioactive dust to go up into the atmosphere. And you, you, you wouldn't get that. You get something similar to what happened in uh, Fukushima where there was a release of radiation because uh, the the plant was uh, you know effectively wasn't destroyed but it was damaged by the tsunami you know in 2011 and so they couldn't cool the reactors because of the the pumps were damaged you know they they so they went into, into a meltdown situation so there's a release of radiation but it didn't really spread very far um if there was an explosion however you, you've hinted at where you know explosives were put on the on a power station then you would get a release of radioactive material. You wouldn't get a Hiroshima or a Nagasaki bomb, which is one of the things that's going around on the on the internet at the moment. That's what would happen because that it's not a nuclear weapon, and and you know you wouldn't get that type. You wouldn't get a mushroom cloud. The, the, you know the you've seen the classic pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. I'm looking forward to watching it. I'm gonna have to watch it as well. My my wife will be. Uh, suitably unimpressed because I tend to to pull all of these things <laughs> apart. out and say, "Oh, that's not true. That's not true. Well, just to, that wouldn't have happened." <laughs> well, well, but just to give you a live example, we're, we're currently binge watching The West Wing, uh, which we've never we've never seen. We're in the last series of it. Saw the one last night, the episode that was all about the nuclear plant in California that was allegedly going into meltdown. And of course, I'm sitting in the corner going, "No, that wouldn't happen." No, no. That wouldn't happen. I'm always going, shut up, shut up. It's just TV. Just let, give it a rest. And I said, well, you know, that's not how it would. Yeah, I think this is based on Three Mile Island. And yeah, this wouldn't happen. So, yes, I, I, I'm quite an annoying person when, when it comes to, to TV and movies about uh, uh, radiation and nuclear stuff. I, I used to do that with uh, Dr. House. Oh, okay. uh, in, the be in the beginning, the show was had really good writers, yeah. like medical writers, and the symptoms were um, were pretty spot on, and you know everything was really really accurate. And then after years, I guess they started getting lazy, and it was it was one of those things where you have like a 
a disease that's, you know, the prevalence is 0.00000. And then of that disease, the manifestations, um, the, the least likely manifestation of it, yeah. like, you know, like your fingernails fall out and you grow feathers and stuff like, uh, that, that's what they would show. But well, well that's, yeah. that's like medical finals exams, though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. N- n- name the 165th cause of a high calcium, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, um, knowledge of, yeah, anything sort of nuclear reactors is, is limited to, to the Simpsons, but like, what would be the first tell signs like in a population if, if there was that sort of leakage well let's talk ukraine because it, it, it's a you know it's in the press at the moment it, it's clearly an active uh, area of concern so if something happened to one of the, the nuclear power plants in uh, ukraine the monitoring is such and the observation is such that we'd pick it up immediately and you would you de- basically scan for uh, isotopes that potentially had been released whether there was a fire, an explosion, or whether there was just a um, what's called a criticality incident. In a criticality, you don't get particles of radioactive material um, blowing in the wind, as it were. Um, you would just get a blast of radiation, which would may only be there for nanoseconds, literally, and you'd then be able to work out, you know, how far that's gone, who's been affected, what interventions you would need to make. The more challenging environment, which would be fire explosion and release of nuclear material into the atmosphere, that's really weather dependent, which it may seem a bit strange, but you, you can you can't predict what's going to happen unless you know what the weather is. So literally, is it raining or not? If it's raining, then the uh, nucleotides are deposited much quicker than if it's not raining. So you have to take that into account. What's the wind speed? What's the wind direction? That's sort of obvious, isn't it? Um, and then you can work out, you know, how long is it going to take to get to, you know, from point X where the event has happened to point Y, you know, your population center. And you've and you've always got time. That's one of the things that people think you've got to act within seconds or minutes. You've always got time because you've got this predictability. You can work out what's going to happen. And what and it's going to happen over hours and days and weeks rather than over... Se- you know, in medicine, we've got this golden hour thing, haven't we? You know, emergency medicine, golden hour. You've got the golden hour in radiation incident, sure, because you can, but that's when you're planning and what you're trying to predict what's going to happen. It's not infallible, of course, because, you, you know, you, you get curveballs, you, you get isotopes that you hadn't thought of, the, that you haven't detected for whatever reason, uh, or something else has happened. And that's where you get the, the communication side of things, where in the first 60, 60 to 90 minutes of a nuclear accident, yeah. so much information has been, you know, exchanged between groups, that things get missed, and, um, you know, you, you get a... And where the the information may not be as robust as you want it to be, which is understandable in a um, a really challenging environment. And we see this outside, you know, whether it's a you know a chemical spill somewhere or whether it's we take the U.S. for instance. You know, recently they've had two major um, train wrecks of industrial chemicals on trains, 
you know uh, yeah and that, that's that's a relatively common occurrence and so you know depending where where that crash has happened what's been released you know where the population sites then you have to work you know work out what your strategy is going to be and some of this you could argue where well, that's always going to be on the fly because you you you, you don't know particularly what the weather is going to be. It says, no, you, but you can, you know, you can plan it. You can look at the prevailing winds. I mean, I, I, for, for a client, I, I did some uh, modeling uh, that uh, actually one of our colleagues, Dave Knight, helped me with um, a little while ago on wind, you know, wind from Ukraine with nuclear tides, whether it was going east to somewhere like Kazakhstan, how long would it take? What would be the, the you know, the trail? Um, also going west to Switzerland. How long would it take, depending on the wind speed? And you're talking tens of hours, not five minutes or 20 minutes. But the prevailing winds, because of the, um, the the topography of southern Ukraine, where you've got you know you've got the Black Sea and you've got the Caspian Sea, that, that you get these swirling winds. And you know, depending on what day it is, a lot of that's going to end up in somewhere like Turkey. So you, you know you have to you know you have to try and plan for that but you can because i go back to and sorry to to reinforce this you know it's predictable you can detectable you can work it out and so you've got time to you know take um advantage of the the monitoring that's in place and also you know that there's some very clever guys that look at weather patterns um and will be able to give you an indication of where you need to be where you need to direct your resources the big thing is about whether you're talking about evacuation or shelter in place. Now, most events, as you know, most emergencies, whether that's an earthquake or whether it's a, a flood, or so, the the default setting would tend to be evacuation, unless you know there's other factors in place. Whereas with a, a nuclear or radiation incident, the default setting really should be shelter in place until you know more about what's going on, because what you don't want to do is get in a vehicle and just drive through a radiation cloud. Which, you know, or, or worse, you know, um, uh, road traffic accidents are, the, are the, the biggest killers of evacuations in situations like this. If you look at um, Fukushima, you know, thousands of people were killed in the Fukushima incident. No one was killed because of radiation or the nuclear event. There was one guy that had a, a dose of radiation above what would you would expect in a nuclear worker um but it wasn't it, it, it isn't going to impact his health over the next 20 30 years uh, although it was significant it was a it was a biggish dose one guy um if you look at the uh the media coverage uh then now and you know since the event thousands of people have died from radiation no they haven't because that that's not how it works um and uh, it's it, Fukushima in the round Fukushima is one of the most highly monitored places in the world for radiation, which is what you'd expect, of course, because you want to follow up. And I, I, I was asked a couple of years ago to uh, help a German company, this is through International SOS when I was still working full time, um, a German engineering company that wanted to set up um, a satellite uh, office just outside the in the Fukushima district 
not far from the Fukushima site. And they wanted a risk assessment done. They were all terrified that no one wanted to go. And all I did, a very simple way to do the assessment is, I looked at what the background radiation level was in the head office in Germany, and what the background level was and where they were going to place the um, their office in Fukushima. And funnily enough, their office in uh, Germany, there's twice the level of radiation what they would get in Fukushima. So I put that to the... C coming from where? Uh, in Germany, I'll not be specific, but but yes, see your your expression there of surprise and but was, really was it like it just that's something that was in Germany or yeah, was well, it... we're all exposed to radiation ah. every day, so that's just the background level of radiation. You know, mm. you're you're in London, I'm in Newcastle at the moment, uh, and there's slight differences in the background radiation levels between our two places my background level of radiation sitting in newcastle is the same as what's out on the outer um the outer fence of zafranice power plant in ukraine at the moment if i was in paris my level of radiation is actually half what it is in newcastle and why is it so high in newcastle what's going on there what are you guys doing it's it's not high that's the thing it's not high it's because we can detect it mm. parts of the uk that are high like aberdeen or in around aberdeen in northern scotland and in cornwall where you've got a lot of granite rock yeah. formation so you actually get a lot of radon gas and so that increases the background level of radiation ah i see i see yeah. okay so there's a lot of natural stuff going on in the earth that's creating some of that background yeah, most of the radiation we're exposed to is, is background, what we class as normal radiation. Mm. We get a little bit from medical procedures. More now, you know, x-rays, CT scans, um, uh, isotope studies, you know, for health reasons will give you a little bit. A tiny amount from the, the above-ground nuclear bomb tests that were in the 50s and 60s. I mean, a tiny, tiny amount. Um, a little bit in industrial environments if you're doing uh, mining activities non-coal mining so you know mining for rare earth metals everyone you know batteries that we everyone wants a, a cell phone everyone wants a laptop then actually the background radiation level there is significantly higher than if you were working in a nuclear power plant oh wow but, you know a, a, and there's loads of um you know referenced robust information to explain this and why why is it so there was a great great story from we're talking hundreds of years ago but in the carpathian mountains in europe there was a mine that was uh, mining for silver and uh, you know making bracelets and but the there was a significant amount of deaths occurred in the miners no one could really work out what was going on and it was hundreds of years ago you know, when you look at it, there was a paper published a little while ago, uh, basically saying, well, ah, yeah, that's because they're actually mining uranium, and they thought it was silver. <laughs> and so the, the, there, was a, there was a significant amount of uranium in the ore, and that's why, you know, there was some uh, health issues. But on saying that, you know, in the 14, 1500s, there was a lot of health issues around that we don't have now. So it's not as if they would immediately think of that at the time, but it just sort of puts things in context, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's something you don't see on the headlines, I guess. Uh, yeah. No, no. And if you if you go to somewhere like, because uh, I know you're a well-travelled man, um, particularly in the Middle East, if you go to somewhere like Ramsar in Iran, that's got a a background radiation level, orders of magnitude higher than the the rest of the world. 
you know um my level here just to put it in context my level here in newcastle is around about three and a half milli sieverts a year don't get hung up with the, the units it's not important um but in ramsar it's about 260 milli sieverts a year you know a huge huge nearly 100 fold uh, difference but when you look at the data, there's no increased cancers there. There's no increased health problems there. Um, and those levels, even at 260, ooh, that's a big number. That must, you know, that must be causing health problems. Actually, it's not because it's still low in the context of what we need to have a medical problem. Because you're looking at a thousand millisieverts really before you would start to get acute health problems from a radiation dose and as i mentioned go back to the the uh, individual worker in fukushima they had a, a dose of 680 millisieverts which is high absolutely high it's about you know they'd spent three to four years in ramsar in uh, iran but they got it over a short period of time and that's one of the key things you know you, you, if you get doses of radiation spread over a period of time it's not as dangerous, not as significant as having a, the same dose in a short period of time. It, it, so it does become complex. And that's why when we're talking about, you know, you asked me about, you know, if something goes pop and radiation is released. That's one of the other things you need to take into account. What's the time of exposure? How long have you been exposed to that? Have you been exposed for seconds, for minutes, for hours, for days? Uh, and that actually makes it a, a much more challenging environment. But go back, you know, you can work it out. And that's clever health physics guys that support me and others that can work this stuff out. And I can give the health, you know, look at the medical countermeasures and talk about the health impacts. Um, but that goes back to my original discussion around, you know, communication and information and again, that robust information to people who can then understand what's going on. I mean, I, 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 and you, you've heard me talk, Rod, and I do apologise for that many occasions over the years. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I use the mantra, and I, there's a quote that I use, which is purported to be from Einstein, but it probably isn't. I'm sure you'll get people pinging the podcast to say it's not. But it, the, the quote, is, and I paraphrase slightly, which is along the lines of, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and I use that. And that's not to dumb down the audience. It's actually to make sure that that clarity of thought is there and the information can be given in such a way that it's understandable. You know, because you've heard us speak about it, I use this banana equivalent dose of radiation in some of the talks that I do. And what does that mean? Well, that's potassium-40 in bananas. Bananas are radioactive. Bananas will, if you've got enough bananas, it will set off the radiation detectors in airports. Not that I'm encouraging you to do that, but it's mainly potassium-40. There's some other um, isotopes in there. And I equate that, you know, if I've had such and such a radiation dose, and I would say, okay, that's the equivalent of eating three bananas. Is eating three bananas dangerous? No, probably not. But it's like, oh, okay. So I'll get the same dose of E3, but yeah, okay. Mind you, if you're having a CT scan of your abdomen, you need about 70,000 bananas. So that's, you know, it's it's things in context, isn't it? You mentioned the Einstein quote, and um, which I love because every time you're right, like every time I try to think of like a presentation I have to give, I, I, I remember that and, you know, try to make it as clear as possible. 
But um, on the topic of quotes, I remember one of the last uh, emails you sent before you semi-retired was Groucho Marx. Oh, yeah. My favorite guy. Is, is there like a, a favorite quote you have of his? Um, there's so many. It, it's, it, it is really, really difficult. I... Uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you another. I'll rephrase the question. So, and this goes into like something I really wanted to ask you about is your, your favorite quote before retirement and then now your favorite quote. All right. Okay. Well, the the one about um, uh, and I don't know the exact phrase. It, it, you've 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 shut thrown me a real curveball here, Rod. So thanks for that. <laughs> Is the what the one about? Um, I, I'm gonna enjoy my retirement. Otherwise, before I die. So it's something like that. It isn't that, but it's something <laughs> like the one before that. It was the the medical quote which I love, which is, well, either this man is dead or my watch is stopped. I, I just love I just love that one. That's um, good. Which uh, I, I think is good. But yeah, I always uh, rely on Groucho Marx to, and of course, most of his quotes, you can prove that they're his. I mean, the Einstein quote that you and I are talking about, yeah. we don't really know if Einstein actually said that. So there's not lots of quotes around that are attributed. To, to folks which actually when you delve into it they never said it and so you know some guy wrote it on a toilet wall and was picked <laughs> up you know so. yeah there's there's one that he had, he has so many good ones you're right um two of my favorite are one was he said i'd never like to belong to a members club that accepted me as a member yeah i, I yeah i do like that one I which do, is uh, is where the name the groucho club <laughs> came yes. from in, in yeah. uh, the famous Groucho Club in London with all the, the movie stars and celebrities. But he has another one that I think is really, really, really relevant and, and pertinent to mental health, um, yeah. which I think you commented on. And it was, it was uh, each, each morning when I open my eyes, I say to myself, I, not events, have the power to make me happy or unhappy. Yeah. I can choose which one it shall be. Yesterday is dead. Tomorrow hasn't arrived. I have just one day today, and I'm going to be happy in it. Yeah. I think that's a great one. He, I it's mean, great. he he was a real, real visionary, an amazing writer. And I think that quote is, he, he coined that after the Great Depression in the oh. 1920s because all the Marx brothers lost all of their money during the Depression, or virtually all of their money, and so ended up having to do some fairly ropey movies in the 40s mm. and onwards that just and of course Groucho ended up on uh, the t on the tv circuit in the in the u.s yeah. in the 1950s yeah he was he was on he was on a few shows he had his own show where he would have like guests mm. come and then i think he was on in a while on that show guests um guess who I am or something where they would blindfold yeah. three I, panelists and they could only ask yes, no questions. And they had to guess like who is being interviewed and, and they had all sorts of people like they had Salvador Dali as a guest and, and they could only answer yes, no. And, but yeah, he's doing a lot of TV. <laughs> yeah. That, you bet your life. I think was another one where he was, yeah. was sort of a quiz show, which ended up, if you if you get the chance to to see some of the shows, there's not that many left on tape. But it was clearly it was just him doing stand up yeah. for for 30 minutes in between sponsors, and the, <laughs> the the guests that were supposed to be answering questions and winning money 
hardly got a word in. And it, it was, I thought that was great. Uh, and the other, the other quotes, since we're talking about Groucho Marx, because both of both of us have written papers and you know help with books and things like that, is that um, he's quote around the lines of, "I, I found your book hilarious." I c- and uh, I couldn't put it down. And one of these days, I will read it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's yeah. so so good. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that is a that is a zinger. <laughs> that, that's a put down. If you ever heard one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, but of course, this is a guy that, as well, uh, you know, distracted me slightly. This is a guy whose tennis partner was Fred Perry. You know, oh, so really? in, in California. Yeah. Oh wow. You know, so he was a great tennis. Both. I don't think he was a very good player, but he he loved to play tennis, and there was a uh, he clearly had um, some significant tennis tennis genius around uh, at that time in the 1930s, uh, particularly when he was playing. But, uh, Bob, I want to ask one last question. What would you say is is the one thing that has significantly made an impact on on your health for for the better in, in the last uh, 12 months? that you would recommend to, to the audience checking out? Can I say two things? Um, one is music. I think you hinted that I, you know, I've got a, got a big uh, vinyl connection, uh, collection and I've been able to sit down and actually listen to music um, uh, for the first time in, you know, actually sit and listen to a whole album or, you know, a couple of albums. I've just bought a whole load of uh, new vinyl and just listen. Leonard Cohen, not so much, you know, if you want to relax and but Leonard Cohen gives you a different perspective on things. Um, so music is one thing. And, and the, the big thing for me, which has been over the last, I suppose, 18 months is working with wood. You know, we're, we're, it's not some, uh, I mean, I, I was, I had, I've always had an interest in woodworking. Right, but my grandfather, when I was about six, seven, eight years old, he showed me things, which I still remember now, he used to hand cut dovetail joints uh, and he built beehives. He was a great guy for, uh, you know, keeping bees. Um, and uh, he he could just make anything. I mean, literally make anything uh, out of wood. And he was renowned in that this was in the 1920s and 30s, way before, of course, I was born. But uh, to help friends out, he'd make stuff for them. Uh, and he used to work down the mine, one of the coal mine, but in his spare time, he used to make things. And I remember that. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And so spent the last couple of years just developing those skills. And it's about li- lifelong learning, as I see it. You know, pick something that you're interested in that isn't work. That's, you know, work is work. And, you know, we should all enjoy our work, which is great. But pick something you're interested in, whether it's reading books or whether it's working with wood or w- welding or getting a big hammer and smashing the hell out of things, you know, just something that gives you satisfaction. And it's great for me to get a bit of wood like that and then turn it into a vase or turn it into a box or turn, as I mentioned, turn it into a chalice with captive rings, you know, and you look at the two pictures and go, yeah, actually, it might not be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, people say, oh, yeah, you've missed a little bit there. You haven't quite sanded that. And the, the, the you know, the, 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 the wax that you've put is, a, I don't care, mate. I don't care. You know, that's, that's from me. I've done this. And it's not dealing with patients. You know, it's not get, going through medical problems. But it's about, yeah, satisfaction. 
that's great. Mind you, my wife takes it the other side and says, yeah, okay, but why have you spent so much money on air extraction and dust extraction? And I go, well, yeah, I've still got my sort of health and safety hat on and I, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get lung disease. I don't want to get, you know, cancer of the nasal passages from hardwood dust. So, yeah, so that, that's a trade-off, isn't there? And would you say with, with woodwork, there's like an element of, of like flow that's, you know, good for, you know, mental health, you know, that thing where you go into this state of like complete concentration that blocks everything out. I think they've shown that like that produces real, uh, real boost in, in neuroendorphins yeah. and neurotransmitters. Do you feel that, like when you're when you're in the yeah, zone? Yeah, and uh, so I turn my phone off when I'm in the in my workshop, and uh, it's amazing how the hours fly past uh, in a good way. Mm. Um, it's sometimes frustrating, of course. You get to the you know four or five hours in and go, I've got to start again because I've made a mistake. Now that that so you've been relaxed for five hours, and then you're like, oh, really okay, but you just suck it up and go, yeah okay. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll have a better day tomorrow. Mm. You know, there's always a there's always a chance that it's going to be a better day rather than oh, I'm just going to throw and this throw it in the bin and I'm never going to come back. Unfortunately, I do see that in I'm in a couple of uh, informal groups and formal groups in, in the northeast of England, looking at wood turning and, and also uh, woodworking, and a couple of guys you know that have come to that have come for a couple of weeks and then have gone. They've spent a fortune on equipment, they, they've, you know, and they've just gone. Actually, I don't like this. And I was going, well, <laughs> why didn't you think, you know, why didn't you try it first, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's like occupational medicine, you know, my specialty. You know, doctors think, oh, I'll do occupational medicine. Say, so, well, have you got any idea what it is? I know. How do you know you're going to like it? Enjoy it? Mm, I don't know, but I can get a certificate in it, and then I can. You know, so no, no, you've got to be, you've got to engage, you've got to, you know, because there's nothing worse, is there, than taking up a hobby because someone's told you taking up a hobby is a good idea. Mm. You hate it from day one and you persevere and all you get is months and months and months of hate. That's not great. That's yeah. not great for your mental health. Yeah, especially if it's an expensive hobby. Well, if you've spent a lot of money, off, well, <laughs> woodworking, unfortunately, is. I might just to give you an aside that, you know, the last two years, wood you know, prices have gone up 300%, you know? Yeah. Wow. I mean, Is that because of shipping, shipping issues? Um, uh, issues around, oh, I hate to use the term Brexit and complications about, oh, you know, yeah. getting uh, things chipped in. Um, just plywood that I use, not for fine work, of course, but I use plywood quite a lot. Yeah. So, you'd, you know, 30 pounds a sheet, you know, two years ago, 120 pounds a sheet now, you know, for the same wood. Uh, and if you're looking at exotic hardwoods, I, I mentioned the chalice that I made for my, my son and daughter-in-law. That's Zebrano wood. That was 20, that, That's a piece of wood I've had for a couple of years. That was £20, I think, when I bought it. That's nearly £80 now for the same bit of wood. Uh, and uh, it's partly about, you know, um, the, the, the huge increase in prices around the world. But it's supply issues. It's transport, transportation costs of Gone, gone up massively you know um and uh, so that's an added challenge that and that's going to stress you out and if you're waiting months or you know weeks or months for bits of kit or bits of wood to turn up 
you know that that can impact on you so you do something else that's what I, that's what i can decant and do the you know listen to music or i can do my micro microbrewery uh, stuff had problems with that because because more most of the the raw materials i use come from belgium uh yeah same issue about you know transportation and also the uh, the complications of cost involved um but yeah it but pick something fun you, you gotta have you know you've got to have fun with a hobby so i know you, you analyze you know you you want some you know deep analysis from mental health remember i'm a geordie i don't do deep psychological analysis i do stuff that's fun i'm going to do that but as you know rod you know i'm quite a determined guy so when i set my mind to something i will crack on and do it um but if i don't like it i will i will dump it i'm currently reading um in order um the uh, lord peter whimsy murder mysteries that dorothy l sayers wrote in the 1920s 1930s just to give a you know something different a perspective on things so i think i'm on the, on the third book in i think there's 14 books in the series so yeah okay i'll i'll read that mind you i'm also reading about uh, the history of israel since 1947 so you know it's a trip mix it mix it up mix it up ah, oh and because i like uh, movies as well as well as uh, music i i'm reading a, an um a biography of uh, alfred hitchcock so i've just i've just binge watched the uh, hitchcock tv series from from america in the 1950s 1955 onwards and that that's that's really interesting incredible to see actors that became really famous in the 60s and 70s getting their start with Hitchcock in 1955, 1956. Yeah, I used to love that show. That in the U.S. when I grew up, there was a channel called uh, Turner oh, Classic yeah, yeah, Movies, yeah, yeah. and it and it just showed, like you know, very very old that, uh, stuff. And it, I remember Hitchcock, you know, walking into scene yeah, and give, that famous yeah, and that car, uh, the sort of cartoon character. Yeah. character. You mentioned uh, yeah. Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, that's just about to be turned off in the U.K. Oh really? Yeah, in the next. I might already have done but it was like oh really okay i need to find it but there's a great movie channel called legend tv which has got old hammer horror movies which i quite like and uh, you know rubbish <laughs> stuff but it, it, it's it's about you know watching it and just forgetting about stuff that's yeah been, good to turn the brain yeah, off it is it, yeah I mean, we, we all need that don't we all need downtime and as you know when i worked for the international sos i was i wasn't the guy that was on call 24 7. You know, uh, if so, uh, people have my home number, if, if you know the the world f was coming to an end, I'm, I was there to help, but not to answer an email at 10 o'clock at night. You know, that that's yeah. not how I uh, operate. Never have done. Um, yeah, we all need downtime. Uh, you've got you, you know you you've got loads of stuff. You know, you're a cordon bleu chef. You you've got the dogs. You, you you're doing this sort of stuff. You know, as well as the day job. You know, so. Uh, you're you, you you're a polymath whereas i am a poly unmath you know i've done lots of things not very well but you you do lots of things very well so <laughs> i i wouldn't say that but it's good to yeah like you say it's good to have different things you're interested in uh, apart from work to help you uh yeah help with that neuroplasticity help you relax it is but in the, in the current you know uh, financial crisis it's hard because you know mm -hmm. hobbies whatever your hobby is tends to cost money 
and uh, you know it's that trade-off, isn't it? If you you can't afford to feed yourself, you're not going to spend money on a on a hobby. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that, and it's uh, but it's so important to be doing something outside of the work environment or outside of the norm, I should say. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Rob. It was a pleasure as always. It's great to, great um, to talk to you again, Rod. Yeah, and uh, look forward to to doing it again soon. So, can I just ask, will you be calling this yeah. this podcast "Talking Nonsense with Doctor Bob"? That would be that that would be <laughs> that would be quite a good title, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, we can go, we can go with that. <laughs> no, it's been it's been great. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed that, please hit subscribe, like, and share. See you next time.